Our Father, thank you uh, this morning for this Lord's Day. It's, it's beautiful outside. It's nice and cool. It's a good day to gather together with your people. And so, Lord, we ask you this day to begin to shape and mold our hearts. We live in a world that is so anti-God and anti-Christian and anti-Christ that uh, it, it takes us, Lord, time to just gather together and gather our thoughts and begin to be heavenly-minded. And I pray that would be our entire day today, heavenly-minded, thinking on things above, thinking of our glorious Savior, being in the Word of God, finding our solace, our safety, our peace, our joy in your truth. And we pray that this morning would would lend itself toward getting our minds and our hearts in the right place to worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to back up just a bit now. And we left off in session one on preparation. And again, you can download all these notes. So as I go quickly, uh, you know, you, you don't have to worry that you're not getting every detail. Um, this is a big one, establishing a place and a time to study. Um, why is that important? Well, it's important because you do that for everything else that's important in your life, right? Uh, I'll bet all of you in your, in your homes have a place where you pay bills, a place where you do the business of your family. Um, and yet I'm amazed that people who have been Christians for 20 and 30 years stick a Bible and a 20-year-old notebook somewhere on a bottom shelf and they don't devote space to it. Um, so devote space to it as much as, uh, as it's important to you. Um, that's that's pretty important. I I love the example um, Ruth Bell Graham. She always was careful to have a space devoted, and her her space was pretty simple. It was two old file cabinets that she got at the garage sale and an old door put across them. And that space was used for nothing else but studying the Word of God. And so what it is doesn't matter, but uh, making it important enough. um, You know, I've seen seen women with spaces the size of an aircraft carrier for makeup and hair. We can have a small space for studying the Word of God. And to be fair, men with four car garages with tool, filled with tools. And, and so we devote space to what's important to us, right? So even if it's a little bitty space, if you have to make a little fold-out desk, whatever you have to do, the space is important. Um, because if it's sitting right there and you're, you finish a, a time of study, you can just walk by again and sit down and do 15 more minutes if you, if you need to. Um, speaking of which, I also want to encourage you to put larger chunks of time less frequently being better than smaller chunks of time more frequently. You need to get your your brain and your mind uh, in the groove, so to speak. And so um, put it in your, in your schedule. Uh, people say all the time, well, I, I just don't have time for this. I would say that you make time for everything that's actually important to you. I think that's true across the board, that you look at your calendar, look at your schedule, and this is what is actually important to you. So um, decide to make it important by putting it in your calendar. And then we talked about gathering some basic materials. This is a little bit older information, free web-based um, Bible study sites, BibleGateway.com, StudyLight.org. I'm asking Jay Street to update that for us. Um, I never look at online resources, so uh, so that's why I'm not super up-to-date. As far as I know, those are still... Um, still there and still good Uh, study Bible get more than one and it's okay if they disagree with each other 
that's okay. You're a, you're a student of the Bible now. We're not afraid of disagreement. We, we want to um, study and make good judgments ourselves. So uh, study Bible, get a MacArthur study Bible, ESV study Bible. Um, it, although I can't stand the translation, the NIV study Bible is excellent. It's, it's quite useful. Uh, Ryrie study Bible, uh, super dispensational and, and very helpful. Um, the Bible Knowledge Commentary by Walvoord and Zuck. That's kind of a must-have. I have that, yes, in my must-have list. Um, like 35 bucks on Amazon for two hardback cover, hard, hardbacks. Um, really a good resource. Uh, other things, Bible atlases. I told you last week, you kind of don't need a Bible atlas anymore. You can Google everything in, uh, on, you know, uh, just put, if you put Jerusalem, uh, make sure to put in ancient times or Jerusalem modern day because it will have different types of maps and so forth. Bible dictionaries, handbooks, we talked about that. Commentaries, we'll talk about more. Um, Your must-haves, a study Bible and the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Those are just basics that you need to have. Um, The Bible Knowledge Commentary was uh, edited by John Walvoord and Roy B. Zuck. Um, and I, I know I know Walvoord's long gone home to be with the Lord. I don't know about Dr. Zuck. He, he may be gone too. Um, but this was back in the days when Dallas Seminary was trustworthy. They are no longer trustworthy, un- unfortunately, in a lot of ways. Um, but this was written by their faculty, and it is outstanding. It's, got, it's very dispensational, charts and graphs, because uh, us dispensationalists, we like those things. Um, but it's it's very, very good, very detailed um, for a small commentary. I'm going to go through a comprehensive list of commentaries later in the semester. Um, commentaries are sort of like uh, the icing on the cake, and you don't just scrape off all the icing and eat it first. Um, we need to eat the cake and then get to the icing, so don't open them yet. It'll, it'll ruin your study process, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, still a little bit of business here. If you are doing the BTI Bible study assignments, these are the ones that you may choose from. Um, and, and these are chosen very specifically. John 11, 1 through 4, Acts 19, 17 through 20, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4, and 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. I chose those because they contain elements of every part of the Bible study process, including dealing with figures of speech. And so, um, uh, and I'm familiar with them. Jay is familiar with them. So that way we're not having to become familiar with every single passage in the New Testament to, uh, to look at your paper. So that's, that's helpful. Um, by the time you finish this, if you're doing this as an assignment, this will be something you use over and over again. And I've heard that from many BTI graduates. Um, later on, I'll give you some, in just a minute, I'll give you some recommended commentaries. Don't look at them yet. Um, look at the passage. We study the word first. But just to tell you about commentaries a little bit, um, and I don't know if I have this on there. No, not quite yet. Um, there, there are three basic divisions of commentaries, an exegetical commentary, um, which sounds great, but if you're not familiar with original languages, it's going to be a little frustrating to you. Um, so those maybe are are helpful, but they might frustrate you a little bit. And most exegetical commentaries will title themselves that, the uh, such and such exegetical commentary series. So you know that's dealing with original language issues. Then English interpretation commentaries, these are interpretive without lots of technical language discussions. These are very helpful. These are kind of your bread and butter to help you 
And then expositional commentaries, um, for example, the MacArthur New Testament commentaries, those are basically sermons turned into commentaries. So those are useful also, but those are, those are the ones to beware of because they'll rob you of all your creativity and they'll rob you of all your ability to think for yourself. Um, especially the MacArthur New Testament commentary. Don't ever make it your first go-to. I tell that to pastors too. Leave it on your shelf. Let it collect dust because John MacArthur will rob you of every good idea you've ever thought you had because he had it first. And that way you can genuinely say, no, this was, this was from my study um, and so forth. Um, so don't make that your go-to. Uh, in the notes, when you download them, I have lists of, of a couple of recommended commentaries for each of the passages that I have listed here. I won't go through them because uh, you can just get it in the notes. If you, if you can't find the notes, let me or Jay know. Um, so the way this works, and it's a little bit clunky, and, and I've never gone back to really make it easier, um, you'll do an assignment based on every topic we're doing in the Bible study, uh, the, the Bible study series here in, in Module 7, but it's not every week. It'll be basically based on um, six or seven of the finished sessions, and what you're doing is just breaking down into component parts a Bible study methodology, um, and so Jay should be getting you just a list of the assignments, but I'll tell you what they are as we get to them as well. Um, and today, what we're going to do is, is just start some basics, and hopefully we'll, we'll get through uh, all of that today. First, we have to start with just the basic classic hermeneutic pyramid. And we talked about the word hermeneutics last time. This is the basic pyramid, and it's, it is founded on observation. And although I couldn't... Uh, because I'm not good with graphics, this line right there ought to be pretty much right there. Observation is a majority of your Bible study because if you mess up observation, everything else gets messed up as well. But that's where you start. And um, where do we? Where, where does the American Evangelical Church like to start? Application, right? I, this morning, in my quiet time, I read David and Goliath, the, the uh, black hole of bad interpretation in American evangelicalism. We always want to jump to application. Well, he got five stones. It's important to be prepared. He only needed one, but he had backups. So you need a good IRA and a 401k. And no, you don't jump to application. Um, what you will find is the more observation you do, the more, uh, the more your application will make sense. So observation. Then interpretation. What is interpretation? It basically is taking your observations and combining them into principles and facts about that, about that text. Um, for example, an observation is something as mundane as uh, all of the verbs in this verse are present tense. The interpretation is because the verbs are all present tense, this is something that is applicable to me right now as well as to the original readers. Does that make sense? You're taking your observation and, and interpreting it, um, and then the application becomes easier, which we'll talk about uh, later on. So today, the rest of our time together, uh, I want to establish context and talk about that. We'll do 
three lessons on observation. I said three weeks. It'll take longer than that. Three lessons on interpretation, and then we'll do application. And oh, I'm sorry, we have old notation. Forget about spring two and summer two. That has nothing to do with you. Um, application, Bible study preparation, and then um, principles of Bible lesson presentation. Have you ever heard some good content, but you weren't convinced that the person even liked it himself um, because he was just so boring? So I'm sorry to use that word, but uh, we'll talk about how to present your Bible lesson even to children in a way that's interesting. Uh, why should we present the Bible like you're reading the manual of a, you know, of a car or something? So uh, that'll be the final thing we do, and that's, that's a lot of fun. So the rest of our time today, we're going to, and I don't have my watch, I just looked at my wrist, it is uh, 9.45, we're going to talk about context. You have to start there. And so um, I want to give you this quote from uh, Dr. James Roscup. A text without a context is a pretext. You must have context, and it's, and it's more than taking five minutes to establish context. It's, it's important. Um, now, the good news is if you're studying your way through a book of the Bible, you only have to establish context one time, um, and you, you take time on that. Um, for example, this morning, uh, later this morning, we're going to begin Matthew chapter 5, which if you are familiar with your New Testament, that begins the Sermon on the Mount. That is the interpretive uh, equivalent of a 10 mile long minefield and so all of this morning is going to be establishing context so that for the next number of months you understand how to view the Sermon on the Mount it's hugely important and it helps you in your interpretive um, process so a text without a context is a pretext meaning you're making assumptions that are generally going to be wrong alright let's get into the weeds here for a little bit we start big the book context you're, you're looking at the author. Why is that important? Because every author has his own um, theology. There is a whole study on Pauline theology and Petrine theology. They, they have a, a way of speaking. And so the author is important. What his purpose is is important. Um, the date is important. What, why is Matthew, for example... Um, always placed at the beginning of the New Testament traditionally because it was the first gospel written and the gospel of Matthew, not Romans, has been the most influential book in the church for 2,000 years, especially in the early days of the church. Um, So the date is important. The recipients and the situation. I'll tell you what, you get that one right. Um, That's... A fourth of your battle right there in understanding where the text is. What was the original author? What was his purpose? What, who was he talking to? Um, the book of Hebrews, for example, is, is somewhat enigmatic. It's a little bit mysterious because the question is, well, is he talking to Jews or is he talking to Gentiles in the church in Rome? Because that's who he's writing to, the church in Rome. Well, the first hint you get is the name of the book, right? Hebrews. But he does address Gentiles and he does and oh on top of that, is he speaking to unbelievers or believers? Because there's all kinds of admonitions to believers, but at the same time, he says three times today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Um, so answering that question is very important. 
book of Hebrews, he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles, both believers and unbelievers. So that makes it pretty easy um, if you understand that. But then, well, which parts are speaking to whom? Well, that's where you have to do closer context. But you see how important um, the recipients and the situation is. It's, it's hugely important. Um, the purpose. Different commentators will have different views. Generally speaking, most of them are going to be complementary unless they're super liberal or, or Catholic. Then they're, then they're just off base. Um, read a few opinions and form your own. Usually you're going to find some overlap, um, but the purpose is important. The recipients and situation help you with that. Uh, location and geography. I, I know this. I, I remember taking geography in high school vaguely. Um, it was taught by our, our high school football coach. And basically he said, read the book for an hour, Monday through Thursday. Take a test on Friday. If you're quiet, I can work on plays for our losing football team. And so geography was just a bunch of maps that made no sense. All of a sudden you're in the Bible and you read about places and this is important. Uh, when, when the Bible says from Dan to Beersheba, what does that mean? From the farthest north to the farthest south in Israel. So geography and location becomes important. And so uh, you, you want to establish that context. The cultural context. What's going on then? Why does the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 say, I, not the Lord, is giving you a command about marriage between a believer and an unbeliever? And you go, wait a minute, is this just Paul's opinion? No. The context is, is in all of the Old Testament, marriage between believers and unbelievers was not an issue. Marriage between Israelites and non-Israelites was an issue. It was sin 100% of the time, according to the law of God. Now you get into the church age, you have two unbelieving spouses, one gets invited to church and gets saved. Paul has to deal with an issue that has never been dealt with in the Old Testament. So he says, I, not the Lord, meaning this is the first time we're receiving revelation about this issue because it's the first time it's relevant. You see why the recipients is important and the the location, the context, what's going on in the culture. Um, The church at Corinth was probably had more couples that were were mixed uh, with unbeliever and unbeliever unbeliever and believer than uh, what we traditionally see almost every couple in the church is saved. So the cultural situation is huge. The religious context. What were they coming out of? Why was uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols such a big issue? Like, have any of you here ever gotten in an argument with another believer about eating meat sacrificed to idols? No, because it's not an issue now. Um, incidentally, uh, uh, halal meat is meat sacrificed to idols. So uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to get in an argument, you can today just for fun. <laughs> so where do you get this information? Um, this is why you need a good study Bible and you read the part that you've traditionally skipped before you start reading chapter 1 of a book and that is the introduction. And you read that carefully. That's why multiple study Bibles are helpful. Some have better introductions than others. Um, introductions, some commentaries, their introduction to the book is 50, 60, 70 pages long. Um, when I was studying for Song of Solomon which is the most debated book in the Old Testament, the introduction to Song of Solomon and most of the commentaries I consulted were longer than the actual commentary itself. Um, and so it it's, can be some brutal reading, but it's really, really helpful to you. And it sets the stage. Um, and l- let, me give you, let me give you one more example. <clears throat> the book of Acts. Basically the same purpose as the book of Luke. 
because they're both written to the same man by the same author. In fact, many put the two together, Luke and Acts, as part one and part two. What was the purpose of Luke and Acts? The purpose of Luke and Acts was to show a man named Theophilus that God can save the very worst of sinners, even if you're a Roman, Gentile, pagan, worshiping, uh, uh, polytheist, he can save you and the gospel is sufficient for all. That makes Luke and Acts, incidentally, by word count, 25% of your New Testament, now understandable when you place every single text into that purpose. So that's just, you see the helpfulness of, of taking your time to do your homework. Um, and so it doesn't require that you be kind of a, what some call a Bible nerd. Uh, it just requires that you do a little work and understand the bigger picture of the book. So that's the book context. Now we get a little bit bigger context of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Why is this important? Because we're talking about difference in covenants. And that's, I, I don't think there's a week that goes by at Grace Bible Church that we don't say the word covenant. It is hugely important to how we understand. How is this book contributing to the message of the Mosaic Covenant or Israelite Covenant um, or the New Covenant? The purpose of the book helps you understand that. So this is important because if it's an Old Testament book, first you must establish the purpose of the book to the Old Testament reader, to the original reader. You were not the original reader of Ezra and Nehemiah. The original reader of Ezra, readers of Ezra and Nehemiah were the generations immediately following the people who were in the book. So it was important for them. So first you have to, you have to answer the question, what did this mean to them? And then you study to build your bridge applicationally uh, across to the church age, to your life, but you always keep the correct covenant in view. I'll give you an example. If someone, if you're going to teach Exodus 20 verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Here's the wrong interpretation. This means we shouldn't mow the lawn on Sundays and the NFL is the child of Satan. <laughs> That means you don't know about the covenants, right? So the right way is the context is the Mosaic covenant. The context is for ethnic Israel. We're not under that law. Romans 6.14. Um, you were never under that law if you're a Gentile in the first place. You were under conscience. That's another issue, another issue for another day. The Sabbath was the sign. It was the signal. It was the, uh, the representation of the Mosaic covenant. And the faithful Jew kept Sabbath not out of fear of God, but out of love of God. Um, do you receive the Lord's table because you're scared that God's going to strike you dead if you don't? No, you receive the Lord's table because it's an act of love because the Lord Jesus commanded you to and it is the sign of the new covenant. And what a beautiful sign it is, the body and the blood of Christ. And we remember those, those key truths of the gospel. The Sabbath was a key truth to the Mosaic covenant that God offered his people rest uh, from their labors and then obviously there will be in the book of Hebrews a New Testament New Covenant application but we don't we don't jump ahead and make that just a just a legalistic law the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ it's now expired at the cross the Sabbath is no longer binding so then you would say well then why am I even going to teach Exodus 20 verse 8 what am I going to say that this used to be a great thing no so you build the bridge 
The faithful Jew loved the Lord. The faithful Jew loved the Sabbath because this was God's prescribed means of expressing, you shall love the Lord your God. And the faithful Jew, with an internal reality of faith, loved God and loved Him through the Sabbath, as long as well as with the other laws. What's the bridge? Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. We're going to spend a long time on that later uh, in the main worship service. I won't give away all the cookies uh, this morning. (laughs) What is that defined as? Now, two or three places in the New Testament, this is called specifically the law of Christ. So you see how you're building the bridge, but you, you must understand covenants and you must grasp that we are not under the old covenant. This is why um, I work really hard to, to, if we're going to talk about tithing, that that is strictly old covenant. Tithing is not a new covenant concept. The new covenant concept is give as much as Christ has done for you. That's the new covenant concept. Tithing was a tax. It was a tax on the, for a theocratic nation to provide for the Levites who ran uh, the, the theocracy. Um, what's the principle, though? Do we give to the Lord? I would dare say that some of you, um, I've seen our numbers, uh, I, I think some of you give way more than a tithe. So, but we don't say you must present your tithes and offerings. That is an, an old covenant concept. We will say all day long, give as much as Christ has given what the Lord has placed in your heart to give, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So, context of Old Testament or New Testament, very, very important, really um, the key. Now, you'll notice uh, in your assignments, I gave you all, um, I gave you all New Testament, I believe. Did I? Yes. Um, so this won't be an issue for you, but if you're, if you're teaching a, um, a children's class and you're going through the book of Job, well, you need to know the context and, and what, uh, what's going on there. The thematic context. What are the major theological themes of the book? How do you find that out? Take Bible Training Institute and uh, you'll have it in your notes. What are the major themes? Get, get out a couple of your uh, study Bibles and generally speaking, they'll have a section called themes or subjects or topics listed in there. Um, and how might my passage fit into this, at least at first glance? You can also get the thematic context through your own multiple readings of the book. Uh, If you're doing a study in Jeremiah, you're probably not going to read Jeremiah through ten times. It's the longest book by word count in the Old Testament. And it's a little bit of a bait and switch. You turn, oh, there's the next chapter. Oh, 400,000 verses in this chapter. So it's not quite like the Gospel of Mark where you can get through it pretty quickly. But multiple readings. Uh, No matter which book of the Bible I'm going to preach, it's always a rule for me. I read through it many times. And I want to be saturated in it just from my own reading. But that's I I bear a responsibility that terrifies terrifies me, so I want to be as, as prepared as I can. But that's a great way to get to get themes. Um, if you don't like to mark your Bible, and that's okay, I don't mark my Bible. I, I like to leave it uh, pristine, and after a while, there's so many marks in it anyway that I don't know what I was talking about. Um, but if you don't want to mark your Bible, there, there's a thousand apps online where you can just print uh, a book of the Bible and then get out your get out your markers and your highlighters and just mark that thing up. Um, that's how I do when I'm going to teach a long section tonight. We're going through all of Nehemiah 11, most of Nehemiah 12. 
12. So generally speaking, I print out multiple pages and I lay them across on one of my tables and I get out a thousand magic markers and I just start marking it up. And I find the themes and I find what's what's in there. And, and if you'll use colors, for example, you'll start to see, wow, there's a lot of green in here um, for this theme. There's a lot of red here for that theme. And, and so you can do it that way. And that's that's probably the, the, the most gratifying because you found it yourself and there's there's usefulness there. I told you you wouldn't use this in your quiet time, but maybe you will. We'll see. Okay, now's when it gets really to the snoozer part. Structural context. That is sleeping pills in the form of words right there, and I understand that. The structural context is important, though, because God thinks it's important. Every book of the Bible has a structure. The subparts of the book of the Bible of a book of the Bible have a structure. Um, the book of Ruth, for example, has been called by non-Christian literary experts the greatest work of, liter- of literary masterpiece ever. Because the structure is literally an entire mirror image all going to one central point in the book of Ruth. Um, and even unbelievers have said that's basically impossible from a human standpoint. It's a, it's a tremendous work of art. So structure is important to God. Therefore, it should be important to us. And so look at an outline of the whole book. Um, an exegetical outline is just an outline that describes what's there without any interpretation. Um, what place in the outline does your passage come? Most um, introductions to, to Bible books in study Bibles or in commentaries will have an outline section. And so where does it come in the, in the larger scope of the book? Uh, look at multiple outlines, if possible, from different authors. Um, that's something that I, I do every time I'm planning a, a Bible book. The first thing I do is I outline the entire book myself. And then I uh, find other men and I make a comparison. So you don't have to go to that extent. But um, look at an outline. And, and where does your text uh, fall in there? Uh, the section context. Now we're getting, we're getting a little bit closer in. What comes broadly before and after your passage? That's important and it helps you understand. Um, the Bible is not just a bunch of verses just randomly thrown in there together. They, there's a reason things come before and after. At the um, at our next women's luncheon a uh, week from Saturday, I believe it is, uh, we're going to look at three verses in Proverbs 16 that seem unrelated, but there is a structure, and it, it's part of a larger structure in all of Proverbs 16, where three where one concept is repeated three times, but like ten verses apart from each other. Once you see that structure, it it opens your eyes to understand what everything in between it means. So um, the, immediate, the section context, what comes broadly before and after, and then the immediate context, what comes right before or right after. This can include even one part of the verse with other parts of the verse, but now, now you're, you're sort of crossing the line into observation, and that's where it gets really interesting. So let me give you a, a, an example of questions to ask. I'll use one of the passages that, that we've assigned, Acts 19, uh, 17 through 20. And uh, all of my notes are still in the ESV. It would take uh, nearly an act of Congress to get this changed over to LSB. So I'm going to stick to ESV for this. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear 
fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So I'm just giving you an example of questions to ask, and then we'll move on to an actual detailed example. In the overall scope of Acts, where does this event fall? That's the book context. So what's happening uh, uh, all around it in the whole book? What's happening generally before and after this event? That's the section context. What's coming right before? What's coming right after? Uh, Verse 17 says, And this became known. The immediate context asks the question, What is this? What's happening right before? And then at the end of verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, what shows this? That's what happens right afterwards. So you see, you're starting broad and working your way into the text. And if you can grasp all of that, um, then it, it really smooths your process out quite a bit. Okay, all of that is just introduction to uh, give me time, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fly through this pretty quickly because this is all this is is an example. The example text we're gonna use for the rest of our time in this module is Ephesians four thirty one and thirty two, and again I'm sticking to the ESV because it would it would take a lot to to overhaul this at this point. Um, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to walk through all those areas of context. I'm going to do it quickly. This is just an example, all right? Um, but this is the text. We will stick with that one all the way through. So you'll be very familiar with this. And you'll notice it's not one of the ones on your assignment. So uh, <clears throat> just, to, just to be a little bit difficult there. Let's start with the book context. The authors, the Apostle Paul, he's identified as such in both chapter 1 and chapter 3, the first verse of each. Um, the date, there's almost no debate on the date of writing, which is great. Most agree on about A.D. 62. The recipients and the situation, what's going on here? Paul was a prisoner when he wrote Ephesians. This was his first Roman imprisonment, which ends the book of Acts, Acts 20, 30-31. Um, it was... Written at the same time as Colossians, since uh, Tychicus carried both letters with him. And if you read Colossians and Ephesians, you find out Colossians is just a slightly shortened version of Ephesians in, in many ways. And so it helps you in interpretation. Another interesting thing here. Many ancient manuscripts don't have the designation in Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 1, that there's literally a blank there. To the saints in blank. Now, why has it been uh, assigned to Ephesus? Uh, The tradition for Ephesus as the recipient church is within one generation of the writing of the book. And so that's pretty good information. In other words, the children of the people who first read Ephesus believed it was, or Ephesians, believed it was sent to the church at Ephesus. So... Why is that blank there? Well, there's three major proposed solutions to this. Uh, First one, Ephesians was written to Gentile Christians in general, and so you kind of fill in the blank. The second one, it was intended as a circular letter to the region all around Ephesus. Um, The third solution is strictly for and to Ephesus. I would say it's a combination of all three, especially the second and third. It was intended as a circular letter. You remember who was sent to the church at Ephesus later on? 
on to fix some of their problems. Who was it? I heard Timothy, so I'll believe that you all knew that. Timothy was sent there. Why was it such a big deal for him to fix a problem in the church? To get rid of bad elders and to install good ones? Because the church at Ephesus met in homes all over the place. Timothy was the shepherd over the whole thing. Um, I was talking to a pastor friend the other day, and we said, boy, wouldn't wouldn't uh, engendering obedience to Christ in the church be easy if every local church had the same doctrine and everyone answered to the same apostle? That would be awesome, right? But we don't have that now. Um, so that was the situation. So it was probably to Ephesus, all the, all the groups that met as the church at Ephesus. Um, it's addressing specific issues suitable for any church. And you might say, well, why is that a big deal? Well, it's really not, because every New Testament book is suitable for any church, right? So, but it's important to know that was an issue. Um, The situation isn't outlined. The situation in Ephesus isn't outlined. Most of Paul's letters uh, give a specific situation. Uh, Colossians does, for example. But the great emphasis is on the theme of unity, and Ephesians gives us a a little clue that there's some correction happening concerning unity. All of chapter 2 is about unity, or all of chapter 3, rather, uh, is about unity. So there's a clue that there's some corrective elements there. Uh, The purpose, and again, there's different versions of the purpose, but they should be some overlap. Gentile Christians were shown their place in the purpose of God for the church and urged to show the outworking of their call in their conduct. And that'll be clearer as we go through this. And and again, this is just an example, so I'm going to uh, keep on going here. The location, geography. Ephesus is located on the western shore of Asia Minor at the mouth of the river Caister, 300 miles east of Corinth. Pretty far away from Corinth. So for, for us, that's, that's a half-day drive. Um, for them, that's days and days of travel. That's a long, long uh, distance. Um, <clears throat> the cultural context. And this is where uh, you begin to connect all that you know about Ephesus from other parts of the Bible. It'll start to make sense. Ephesus became part of the Roman province of Asia in 133 BC. In even more ancient times, Ephesus was actually a coastal city. It was on the coast. Um, but silt began filling in the Caister River and, and the coast actually went outward. So the city was moving inward slowly. Interestingly enough, by Paul's day, there was only one channel to the sea from Ephesus and it was constantly having to be dredged. They had, they had ships with, with men in it, with long shovels, just trying to keep that thing able to um, let ships come in for, uh, for commerce. It was a spectacular city. It had marble roads. Can you imagine roads paved in marble? Uh, the way they did things back then was to build something that was meant to last a thousand years, and they, and they did it. Um, marble roads, temples, fountains, a town hall, monuments. There were private homes, baths, latrines, um, an auditorium. Uh, very likely, this is where the lecture hall of Tyrannus was that Paul taught in for a time. There was a library, a theater, a stadium, many other civic structures. There was a, a the main boulevard ran very picturesquely right between uh, Mount Caressos and Mount Pion, right right in between them. 
In Paul's day, Ephesus was basically uh, maybe two-thirds the size of Bakersfield. That would make it a huge city. Uh, 200,000 plus, maybe even more. There's an inscription found in the city that described it as the most illustrious city. And so it's just a, an amazing place. It was one of the top three trade centers in, in the eastern Mediterranean. Antioch, Alexandra, and, and uh, Ephesus were the three big ones. The great theater of Ephesus was the largest largest Greek theater in all of Asia Minor. It held somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people depending on the archaeological source you use. That's, that's a modern day size um, uh, the, uh, theater. This was the theater in which Demetrius the silversmith made a protest against Paul's preaching in Acts 19. But the big part of Ephesus that you have to know is the greatest attraction and the glory of Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. Uh, The Temple of Artemis, that's the Greek name or Diana, the, the Roman name. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest structure in all of the Greek world. It was it was huge. It was the place you went. It was as large as 425 by 240 feet. So that's way bigger than a football field. It was big. It was made of marble with cypress wood paneling, cedar roof beams, 100 columns that were 60 feet high, 36 of them carved with ornate carvings that took years to do. The temple also was so... um, It was so secure that it served as the national bank of Asia Minor. That's where wealthy people went to keep their money. And this is important because the Artemis cult was closely related to business. And you had to be an Artemis worshiper if you wanted the banking services. Doesn't that sound like uh, the coming days with Antichrist? That if you want to be a part of the commerce, you have to worship Antichrist. The temple was destroyed in 262 AD by the Goths and it was never rebuilt. Now, let me go back to, I said that that even the cultural context gives you some clues as to uh, what the Lord was doing in this city. You remember what the Lord threatened the church of Ephesus with in Revelation 2? The Lord Jesus himself, that if you don't return to your first love, I will shut you down. I will remove your lampstand. What happened to the church at Ephesus? Same thing that happened to the city of Ephesus. It's, it's gone. It is just ruins now. Now it's a, um, it's a tourist site where you go and see a bunch of pillars and fallen down houses. Why is that? Because the river completely shut down and no ships came there anymore and the city was abandoned. Um, why was that? Because the church at Ephesus didn't return to their first love. So um, you begin to see these connections if you take the time to study this. Now what about the religious context? It was a major center of polytheism. It featured the worship of up to 50 gods and goddesses. Can you imagine trying to do apologetics there? I mean, we were, you know, okay, we deal with Catholics, we deal with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, uh, the Sikhs here in Bakersfield. Okay, we got five or six that we have to think about. They had 50 they had to think about. So what does the book of Ephesians center on? Is it on apologetics, on how to defend your faith against every type of polytheistic uh, worship? No, it is a tremendous thesis on the gospel. That that's what they needed to know. That's what they needed to focus on. By far, because of the temple, the most pervasive was Artemis worship. A month of the year was named after. They had uh, Olympic-like games called 
uh, Artemisia in honor of her. It was it was a time of uh, of games and and celebration. The sale of silver items related to Artemis was the major part of the local economy. So when people started getting saved, what happened to the uh, to the idol worship business? It started going down, and that's why you have a riot there because Christianity does impact the economy. Artemis was thought to be the mother goddess who nourished heaven and earth. Um, It's very possible that Paul was countering that in Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That was kind of a punch in the nose to Artemis worship. According to some sources, the temple had numerous priestesses who contributed to the rampant sexual immorality of the city. Paul deals with sexual immorality in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. And so he is dealing with the cultural context. Uh, Very closely connected to Artemis worship was the use of magic. Magical charms with the names of six powerful beings on them were manufactured and they were sold everywhere. And these were magical words to be repeated to to rid people of evil spirits. They were even worn by athletes to give success. Um, They practiced astrology, magic spells. They, They tried casting out evil spirits using magic. Well, the text we just read earlier, Acts 19, reports that many of the new believers in Christ gathered to burn what? Their magic books. And, and, and they, they, they reported the amount of money that they were worth, 50,000 pieces of silver. It was, a, it was it, the current context would be millions and millions of dollars worth of, of information about magic. And what about the church in Ephesus? We don't know how the gospel first came to Ephesus. We don't have that information. Paul visited briefly. He left behind Priscilla and Aquila in anticipation of a longer visit later. Um, Before Paul came back, though, uh, Apollos began preaching in Ephesus, but he preached an incomplete gospel. And he was corrected by Priscilla and Aquila and went on to be one of the greatest preachers in the early church. And so there were already believers in Ephesus when Paul began his ministry there, but he brought organization, brought cohesion to the church. He brought apostolic authority. Acts chapter 19 talks about this. It was mostly made of Gentile converts, but with some believing Jews as well. When he left after his three-year ministry, he left the church in the care of the elders, Acts chapter 20, and he warned them that there were going to be wolves from among themselves that would, that would rise up. And to be careful, those are the men that just six or seven years later, Timothy was having to deal with. After his release from his first Roman imprisonment, Paul visited once again to deal with the problems in the church. That's when he left Timothy in charge of overhauling them. Um, the early church fathers testified that the Apostle John came to Ephesus late in his life, maybe even after writing the book of Revelation, and he spent the final years of his ministry there. And as I mentioned already, Ephesus is the first recipient of the letters to the, to the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And it apparently was the lead church in that whole area. That was the one that you, that you counted on. And, and we have those today, don't we? We have churches that kind of make you feel like uh, that, that Christianity is okay in the world. When there's large churches that have been faithful and solid for decades and decades. Um, but when you see a church like that suddenly turned on its ear and going off track, it makes everybody nervous. Because if they go off track, then, then what's to say our little church won't go off track? So why is all of this important? 
Well, it's important because it, it puts you there. It puts you in the place of the recipients. It adds clarity and, and, and meaning to the text that you're examining. And, and it makes you feel like you're sort of a part of what's happening there. Um, apart from just the interesting nature of studying context, and, and I hope it's interesting to you because these are the people that God chose to write to. Um, apart from just the interesting nature, if you'll saturate yourself in this and just, to, if I could use this word, just get a little nerdy about, uh, about this information for a while, it will help you just grasping your text and you'll be more motivated to get it right. Um, and, you, and that way you won't be uh, guilty of just deciding you know what this means. Then that's just the book context. We'll go faster now. Context Old Testament and New Testament. This is a New Testament epistle written in the context of the church age. Epistles are didactic. They're meant to teach. They are filled with detailed information. Um, if you've been exposed to expository preaching for any length of time, you know that when we preach through epistles is when we just slow down because every verb, every noun, every sentence construction is pa- jam-packed uh, more so than, say, in, in an Old Testament narrative. So it's, it's a it's a teaching epistle. All the commands are directly related to my life now. It is New Testament. There's no need to build a bridge um, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. There is a need to build a bridge from Ephesus in the first century to Bakersfield in the 21st century. That's the bridge you build. And the last three chapters, this is the overall context, are related to the outworking of my faith. The themes... And I tell you, tell you this for a specific reason. The church as the body of Christ, unity in the body of Christ, love, it's used as a verb or a noun 20 times in, in Ephesians. By grace you have been saved, chapter 2. You have household instructions. We, we, if you were here yesterday, we went to Ephesians 5 multiple times. There's household instructions, Ephesians 6, how children relate in their households. Um, the sovereign purpose of God in establishing the church, the, the clear doctrine of election in establishing the church in chapter 1. And then you have the concept of walk. This is an Old Testament concept brought forward to the New Testament. My relationship to the Lord is a walk with Him. And that's we use that phrase so much here that it just sounds normal to us. But in Ephesians, it's referenced seven times. Now, why do I tell you this? Because... This text, that it's our sample text, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. What does this tie into? It ties into nearly every one of those themes. It ties into the church, clearly. It ties into unity. It ties into love. It ties into being gracious, be uh, grace, be kind to one another. And it ties into our walk. And so... So by simply tying it to nearly every theme, you see how clearly it's putting forward Paul's purposes there. And then, again, the structural context... Ephesians is easy. It's divided in half. The first three chapters, the call of the church. The second three chapters, the conduct of the church. Uh, Others would say the doctrine of the church and the duties of the church. So however you want to do that, chapters 1 through 3 is theology. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is how you live that out. So where is Ephesians 4? It's in the conduct section. What does that mean? It means you're not trying to learn concepts so much as you're trying to be told what to do. 
and you're going to um, obey those things. Why? Because we get even clearer down into the section context. The section begins with Paul's command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So this is our walk. This is how we do it. And he's given instructions to the whole church, church members in particular, and my passage, this passage, fits into that. Church members in particular. The next chapter continues on with individual conduct and the family and so forth. And then the immediate context, the part right all around it, right before, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So there are implications in verses 31 and 32 about grieving the Spirit by being bitter and wrathful and angry and not forgiving and so forth. And the section immediately following, chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That's your immediate context. So, there you go. That's our sample. I told you we would go through it fast. Um, Just as a little summary... This is kind of your, your assignment, um, and I'll leave this up here, and it'll be uh, online as well. Use all the materials you have. Use, a, use the Bible dictionary to help you with this. You don't have to write a 20-page paper. Just make some notes. And um, I just gave you an example of what you could do. That was a shortened version of about 25 single-space pages that I wrote uh, when I was doing a study on Ephesians. And so you don't have to do that. But do as much as you can. Um, just get used to getting the contextual information. I'm going to switch slides just for a second and come right back. Nope, that's it. Okay. Um, so this is, this is the first startup here. Um, write some bullet points to establish the context of the Bible passage that you've chosen. Um, one to two pages, single space. This works really well. In bullet points, it can be longer if you want. Use the other materials we've talked about. And th- this will set the context. Please, please trust me that before you start digging into your verse, this is a necessary first step. And it's, it, it'll be helpful to you. And the beauty of this is, is that for the rest of your life, if you chose, for example, 1 Peter um, 4, 8 through 11, uh, for the rest of your life, you have information on what 1 Peter is about. So you can study every other passage, and you'll always have that. So, um, and you'll, it'll be more useful in your own words. Okay, we did it. I can't believe we got through a, a session one. Any quick questions on that? Just on the on the assignment mostly. That's what I want to answer questions on because I know we need to go. Yes. This is, so the final project is all of the assignments kind of all put together. So I'm just breaking this down into its components. This is the first step in the recipe. Okay? So just do the first step. Yeah, that's right. That's that's the whole point to, to make baby steps. Yeah. Uh, question. Uh, when we do the men's retreat for the Psalm 23, yes. will the chapters before and the chapters after, aren't they different? Because there's different authors in Psalm. Psalm 22 and 24? Yeah. You have to come to the retreat to find out. <laughs> because there is, a, there is a context, and the Psalms are in a specific order for a specific reason. Okay. So, so yes. And don't cheat and look ahead. It'll take all my good stuff away. So, All right. Any other questions? That was a great question. Uh, just so you know, if you're wondering why are we doing this here and at the retreats, uh, it just worked out that way. But at the retreats, this is very much... this is The, the retreat is not for you to present information, although we'll talk about that. It, it's for you to take one verse of the Bible or six verses in the case of Psalm 23 and and weave them into your heart and mind in a way maybe you never have done before. 
And so I'm eager to do that. We're going to share a lot of information from Puritans on the meditation of, of Scripture and how that worked in their lives. And that's why uh, when Puritans write, they write volumes because they just sat around thinking about the Bible. And um, so I want to teach you how to do that. I think that will be important. We're out of time. Thank you for listening today. We'll see you in just a few minutes. Lord bless you.